Good morning, VCF. My name is Rajiv, and it is a privilege to bring the word um, to you guys today. We have been in the wilderness, and some of us are still in the wilderness, and I congratulate you if you are in the wilderness. Um, we want to stay there, at least for the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, a couple weeks ago, if you guys were a part of the fall feast, then you experienced the Sukkot that we had in our parking lot where people came uh, and we got to see each other for the first time. And the theme was living in the wilderness, being in the wilderness, and what God actually does to the process of formation in the wilderness. And even last week, Pastor Malcolm from Malaysia spoke to us about the things that Joseph had to go through as a part of his formation to wear his second tunic, so to speak, um, so that he would he would know God's real identity in him when everything else was being stripped away. And so today I kind of want to piggyback off of the last couple of weeks um, and also talk about what God might do in the wilderness and a couple of different points within the context of the wilderness that I think God has to speak to us today. And specifically when we are talking about our calling, our purpose, we're wondering if God actually has a way for us is there a unique path that God actually has for each one? Or do we live in a general world where it's up to us to figure out what to choose among the plethora of options that we have? And so today we want to talk about the way, the way that God might have for you and I. When my parents came to America, uh, we were pretty poor. We didn't have anything because we came as refugees. And uh, my education was considered the way for us. So they presented the idea of education as the way. So my mom and dad would stress to my brother and I that if you get your education, if you do well, that will be a way for you um, in your future. And, and to a large extent, they were correct. Um, and so when my mom passed away, I was nine years old. My brother was 15. So I was going, it was a summer of me going into the fifth grade, and it was a summer for my brother going into the 10th grade. And I remember there was an opportunity that came about for us to study uh, or go to school at a prep school that I won't say the name of, but it's kind of in this area. And it's a prep school. Uh, I think it's first grade to 12th grade. So I could have gone there and my brother could have gone there. And so when that opportunity came, we thought, oh, this this is a good way. Remember, education was the way. So this opportunity might have been the way as well. And so <laughs> in order to get into the school, you had to take an exam. And so my brother and I both sat for the exam. And, uh, you know, I at that time was probably more uh, concerned about the snacks that I was eating during the, during the exam. And my brother was a studious one. So we both took, took the exam and to be honest, I remember very distinctly, I didn't even know what was going on on the exam. I was looking at it, and you know, things are going wrong when you just start laughing. So I started laughing, but in a jovial way, I started marking up my paper. And anyway, after the exam, my brother's like, how did you do? I said, I think I did good. <laughs> and, and I already knew he probably got 100%. And what happened was, when we got the results back, he... Uh, it looked like both of us failed. Both of us, our marks were low and we couldn't get in. Now, 
nobody for a second was surprised that I didn't pass. <laughs> no, like my dad and my grandma at the time, they were, they were like, okay, that's okay, that's okay. But we all looked at my brother. Something was wrong. And my brother said, I got 100%, especially on the math part. I got 100%. And he was very sure of it. And so my dad looked into it. He called and he demanded, if you know my dad, he will fight for you. He demanded um, that we see the exam because, you know, Sanjeev is intelligent and he, he can't fail. And um, it came to be that they, would re- they refused to give my brother the results. They wouldn't show him the exam. My brother said, I think I got 100%. And they wouldn't give it to him. And anyway, we researched later and we found out that in order to get into that school, you have to be someone who's, who can show that not only can you pay the tuition, but you also have to donate to the school. And upon more digging, we also found out that, that uh, there were racial issues as well. And so with a name like Nanda Kumaran, they probably didn't want us in that institution at the time. This is 93, 94. And so... All that to say, God had a way for my brother, because if you look at his life now, he still made it, <laughs> and he did fairly well. He, went, he, 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 he couldn't get into that prep school, so he took his talents to John Marshall Fundamental, <laughs> go Eagles. He was just a regular kid, but then he did really well. He got Pasadena, um, I think he, he got an award called Pasadena Teenager of the Year. Like, what is that? Why, why would you get Teenager of the Year? And then he got into almost like every college that he uh, applied to, scholarships, went to med school, and, the, you know, that's it. So basically, God had a way for him, but it wasn't the way that we had thought. And, a lot of, and, and the thing that I would say about my brother in that case is he wasn't at all very phased that it didn't work out for him. It, he wasn't very phased that... Uh, okay, well, this this prep school didn't want him. He kind of still figured out a way to get to the calling that God had for him. And I want us to think about what are the what are the ways that we struggle with that? Are there ways that we struggle with when when we have our set agenda and it doesn't work out as planned? Are we people who are resilient enough to actually still execute the plan that God has for us? Or are we so tied to the way that we thought it would happen? And I just wanted to, I wanted to re, uh, just open in Isaiah chapter 35 very quickly. Isaiah chapter 35 verses 1 through 8, and I'll be reading in the NRSV. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes 
And look at verse 8. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. That means in your wilderness, in the wilderness, there will be a highway somewhere. But there's prerequisites, right? You have to strengthen your weekends. You have to prepare. And at some point, there will be a highway. There will be a way. And in the wilderness, in the very setting that God wants to move in, there will be a specific way, and others can't come on that way. It is for you. It is for the people of God. It is a very narrow way. And you'll find that the closer you come to God, the more intimate your relationship with Jesus is, you will experience a narrowing of options in your life. All the, all the th- options that were once available to you or even once enticing to you will not be anymore and there will be a narrowing. Your scope will become very small. And a lot of times we get afraid because we assume that freedom is associated with bigness and freedom is associated with multiple options. But it's been said that the, 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 the gift are the option, the, the gift are the, is the freedom, but the curse are the options in a lot of ways. And the freedom of God comes with a narrowing of options for you. But we, we are not people that are much concerned with the way, we're concerned with the outcome. We're concerned with the destination. If you guys heard, if you follow baseball at all, the Houston Astros a few years ago basically cheated to win the World Series. And it's not debated, it's a fact right? This is not, it's not like a controversy. It's a fact they cheated. And so they're, they thought that, the, the, they thought that if we could win a World Series, if we, if we could win a championship, that would be more satisfying than the actual route that it takes to get there. And, I, and, and, it, and it's amazing that we are people that are so destination conscious that we would do anything in our destiny to basically get there. And I want to say to you that in Isaiah 35, God is extremely concerned with the highway. He's extremely concerned with the way that you get to where he wants you to go. The end does not justify the means. In a lot of ways, the means justifies the end. God is overly concerned with our way. He is a God of the way. He wants to know what happens in the journey. And we don't think like that. Conversely to the Houston Astros, just a few weeks ago, the Los Angeles Lakers won the championship. And something interesting happened in game five. So if you don't know about basketball, best of seven, first team to win four wins the series. In game five, the Lakers were expected to win. And it went down to the last second. And LeBron James had the ball. And, And you know, I'm not a huge LeBron fan, but I really respect his game. And he had the ball, and he, was, he, he took the ball to the basket, and he was triple teamed. And what he did was he threw the ball back to a wide-open man, Danny Green. And Danny Green shot the ball, and he missed, and the Lakers lost that game. Now, here's the thing. After the game, everyone was ripping LeBron James apart for not taking the shot. But, the, but, but in actuality, he did the right thing. LeBron did the right thing. If you play basketball the right way, you draw defenders to you, you look for angles, and you give it to the open man. And he actually did the right thing. And and people persecuted him for doing the right thing. 
But guess what? The next game they came, they, they played, he did the right things, and they blew out the Miami Heat and won. See, the issue is when you do the right thing, you have to be okay with losing. Most people are not okay with doing the right thing because the right thing sometimes could cost you to lose. But if you play the long game, if you do the right thing, and if you focus on the right way, the way that God has for you, you will win, but you will win in God's way, not your way or not the world's way. And so I want to stress to us today by means of introduction that the highway in a lot of ways, is the only way. You and I, in the days to come, do not have to worry about necessarily where we're going because, honestly, we don't know. And if you think you know, <laughs> you'll be, uh, you're probably going to be in for a ride, right? Because we don't really know where we're going, but what we can pay attention to is the manner in which we, we get there, the highway, Are you going to be willing to be a person who has integrity and who does things the right way, even if the world, even if your family, even if society, your culture, and your own expectations are shattered to pieces? Will you do things the right way, um, even when it's costly? The people, people who do things the right way, I realize something about them. I've studied these type of people. They are people who are willing to be separated out. They are people who are not afraid to be separated from the pack. And there is is a person in, in scripture who also was like that, who started his life with separation, and that is Abraham. And I'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 13. And let me just read the passage really quickly, and then we're going we're gonna to go through some things. Genesis chapter 13. I might as well just read almost the whole chapter. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. He journeyed on by stages from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had been an alt- when he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them living together, for their possessions were so great that they could not live together. And there was strife between the herders of Abram's livestock and the herders of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites lived in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, very wisely, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So... Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Raise your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Rise up, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Separation. I think before I talk about separation, I want to talk to you a little bit about what separation is not, because I think we can use the word separation very carelessly. And so separation doesn't mean you leave something when it's difficult. That's not what separation is. Uh, If you and your spouse are going through difficult times, you don't say separation because it's difficult, right? Now, I understand there's different variables that play into that particular example. uh, But generally, we don't talk about separation because something is very difficult. And a lot of you A lot of us can be great separators, but sometimes we're separators because of convenience. We're not really separating unto the things of God. We're separating because it's very convenient, especially in this COVID season. It's very convenient for you to not be at church right now. (laughs) It's very convenient to wait until you get a link tomorrow morning, right? It's very convenient. There's there's separating points. So I I, I don't want us to talk so carelessly about separation. But separation is when we do things where we're separating ourselves unto God so that God will join us to the things of him. It's allowing God to do the mixing and matching and tearing. And God always calls us to separate from things, people, and places. If you think that this world is a big kumbaya session where you're always just going to be building community everywhere you go and friendships and community, everything's going to be good, you will be... Um, in for a painful surprise because a lot of times God purifies us through separation. Ultimately, God is about unity, of course, the unity of the believers, the unity of the saints. But separation is a big thing um, when he wants to circumcise us unto his purposes, right? And so one of the things I learned about separation in this in this text is Abram says in verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herders and my herders, for we are kindred. At that moment, the text doesn't say that there there were issues. So Abraham was foreseeing what could happen. And a lot of times, separation prevents the consequences and deep turmoil and dissent that is guaranteed in the future. God will ask you to separate because if you don't, there is guaranteed consequences that is coming. Now, I'm not a guy who likes to separate. I don't like separation. Separation is very awkward, odd, and painful for me. Um, just even in my, in my musical career, I remember the first two years that I, did, that I started as an artist, I was doing very well, better than I deserved. And much, much because of uh, the manager that I had at the time. And he's a friend of mine. He's still a friend of mine. But we separated. (laughs) We separated very quickly, almost when things were going up. And I knew 
that was going to happen eventually, but I just wanted to ride the wave of my success. And I didn't have the guts to separate, even though I knew in the future it's not going to work out. I wanted, I wanted to keep it. I wanted to keep him as my manager. And I realized that the reason why we don't like separation is because the thing that we're asked to be separated from is often the thing that we asked God for in the first place. So we're confused. We're often asked to separate from things that are good. Right? That's why it's hard. Toxicity is not hard to separate from, although sometimes it can be. But we are, the the more mature we are, separation might be a little bit more nuanced because we're going to be, we're being asked to separate from good things. I mean, Abraham separated from his nephew. That was his family. He wanted him to, and you'll see later, he loved him. He went and saved him, you know, later, later in chapter 14. So I want to be careful about separation. There's no rules. I don't have any rules to tell you about separation. I don't have any factoids for you. That's where you need the Holy Spirit. Separate, but I know that God separates us out whenever he wants to do something special. And we can't label separation things of our own desires just because it becomes difficult. That's not what separation is. Separation is when you sense the Holy Spirit saying, move on or move away from this place. I'm doing a new thing in you. And I wonder if there's any of us here today where you just got to be separated out and you need people to be accountable. You need to be accountable to people to ask them the questions of whether separation is good or not. See, if you're thinking about separating from a space or separating from a job or separating from a person or, or separating from a group of people, you need to be humble enough to know that you may or may not be correct. And I would advise you to invite people into that conversation because separation is not an easy thing. Now, the main thing, so that was just, I don't really want to focus much on separation. The main thing I want to focus on is the response from Lot and the response from Abram. Look at verse uh, 10. So when Lot is presented the opportunity to pick whatever he wanted, he, in verse 10, it says, Lot looked about him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered. So basically, his eyes lit up because he saw, he started to appraise the land. He became a real estate agent. He started to appraise things based on his own appraisal. And he believed that the best way of approaching the decision was to go, obviously, um, towards the Jordan. And, you know, the fair thing would have been maybe I'll be on one side of the Jordan. You can be on the other side of the Jordan. His whole thing was I'll just take both. Right. He was being selfish and he was he was thinking for himself. And I think I think here's the difference. Lot appraises the land for himself. And then in verse 14, we see something very special. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, raise your eyes now. So here we have two people 
assessing the situation in completely different ways. There's two ways that you can look around at your life right now. There's two ways that you could figure out what's the best path for you. It's either you look around, you you appraise the land, or you can let God do that for you. And I just want to talk really quick about our need and our desire to appraise things for ourselves. Okay? Because in America, we have the we have freedom. And so freedom or supposed freedom and freedom is shoved down our throats so much and the idea of whatever freedom is, okay, whatever that big idea of freedom is, that we as Christians take on that type of freedom and think that if we mix that with our spirituality, we can somehow figure this, we can somehow get the best of everything. And I want to say to you today that that is not freedom. That is not the freedom that God has for us. When we appraise things, we go a lot based on the desires of our eyes, of our eyes and of our flesh. And it's interesting because Lot probably doesn't want to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he sets his destination that way. And a lot of times, whatever way that you set your destination in, you will arrive at that destination. You don't get to, you don't get to set a course for your life that's kind of next to evil. You don't, you don't get to do that. You don't get to go, you don't get to uh, make a lot, you don't get to have the best of both worlds where you get, uh, you get, can just live right by evil and think that the evil won't actually consume you. And that's what he was doing. He was building his tents right by evil. Appraisal. If I told you guys that Lydia and I decided we're going to move to Oklahoma, I would say that 95% of the people in my life would say, wow, praise God, and not say anything about it. Because we live in a space, in a world, where nobody wants to question how each other appraises situations. Nobody loves people enough to question why you're making the decisions that you are making. I'm going to let that sit in because my love language is when people question what I'm doing because I feel like we're in a space where we will see two people dating and we will see that they're clearly not matched for each other and we will clearly not say anything about it and we will say, I will pray for you. Now, I am not I am not advocating for, for, for you and I to go around trying to right people's wrongs. That's not what I'm advocating for. I'm not advocating to just tell people the truth obnoxiously, right? I'm talking about people that are close to you. I'm, peop- I'm talking about people that, um, live, that live life with you day in and day out, okay? That is what I'm talking about. I believe that we are in a space where nobody likes to nobody likes to impose their ideas and godly opinions on other people. I have seen it time and time again because the 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 slight in America imposition or or imposing your love or opinion on somebody 
it's almost that's worse than letting somebody go into a disastrous consequence. It's almost worse. I would rather be wrong than let somebody, I would rather be wrong about a situation than let somebody I love have to go through a disastrous situation. But it, we have it completely backward because we, we respect so dearly people's ability to appraise situations. And I personally feel like God has a word for someone today. I know that's tough to hear because we don't want to take that for granted and just start saying or inviting people into our lives to say whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But the people that are close to us, the people that have built community with us, are we open to questioning the way that we appraise the situation? Speaking of appraisals, I have this contractor friend of mine, and he he doesn't speak English that well, and but we're like really good friends. And he will he will tell I will give him suggestions and he will always say that's the, that's a dumb idea. He will immediately he'll be like no 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 you're not going to want that. Now here's what I found in my relationship with him. We go back and forth and he loves me a lot and I love him a lot. But he never agrees with me. But honestly, like a lot of times I'm right. Okay, just between you and me. A lot of times I'm right, and he, he will say, okay, actually, you're right. He disagrees with me so much that I trust him so much that I'm going to start a business with him because of how much he disagrees with me, because of how much he's willing to shift the way that I appraise things, how much he's willing to do that because so that we can learn together. And I just wonder... Who do you surround yourself with that can, that could help you with the appraisal of your life? With the ways that you scan and the ways that you see life, how, who, who is there with you? Who is telling you, eh, nope, that's not a good idea. See, I don't think that love only keeps that to your family. Like, I don't think that I'm only supposed to tell that to Lydia, Simone, and Soleil. I don't feel like that. I personally believe that love When you really love someone, you can freely help them appraise their life and vice versa. And guess what? When people disagree, even when people disagree with you on something that you believe strongly, the disagreeing will actually help you believe it more strongly. That's what it does. It sharpens you. And when people love you, they don't disagree with you to necessarily change your mind or change your course. They disagree with you so that it will sharpen your mind. It will sharpen your spirit. It will awaken maybe considerations that you weren't considering. And it will bring it all to light and God will have his way. And I just want to, I want to wonder how, I just want to ask you, how do you guys appraise things? How do you determine things in your life? And who is there with you as you do it? See, Lot plays the field. He's playing the field, right? He's, he's looking, he's playing the field. It's kind of like relationships, you know, like when you play the field. It's like whatever's there, the best of the best you will go towards. But God doesn't play the field. He plays in the invisible spaces. And I wanted to know, what's the difference between how Lot appraises the field and how Abraham does it at the time, Abram. But how does Abraham do it? Because it says that, G, that God says, 
raise your eyes now. And really, that's all good about Lot. But what does that mean for us? At what point do we raise our eyes? How do we raise our eyes? So I just wanted to take a look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, just three verses, verses 22 to 25. This is when Jesus cures a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. This is a very peculiar passage, and commentators have said, oh, well, this, this is a different kind of healing. You see healing in two stages. You see, first, the blind, Jesus lays his hand on him. The blind man can see, but not really. And then, and, then he, and then he gets fully healed the second time. Then he can see clearly. So there's many questions that you might ask. Well, does this mean that Jesus' power was not enough the first time? commentators have said, no, it wasn't that. It's the lack of faith for the man. So it was a, it was a process. It was a process by which he got healed. Um, maybe, maybe the man was very uh, distracted. That's why it says that Jesus had to take him to the village, take him out of the village. Maybe the man had uh, severe unbelief. So it took, it took multiple iterations. And, and, and I, I want to say that I, I read this differently this time. And here's how I read it. The first time, Jesus actually heals him. And he could see. But the second time was to heal the way he saw. Because if you look at verse uh, uh, 25, the second time, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored. So Jesus healed the way he was able to look, not his sight, because his sight was already healed. But in the second time, Jesus had to heal the way he saw things. So he healed the man's inability to look intently, right? The man, the man could be healed, but he needed, he, needed, he needed a second healing for him to look at the world the correct way, to look at the world correctly, so the first time wasn't the first time it was not a lack of power from God. It was just a purification of the man the second time, not from God's side. So Jesus had to heal the way that the man could look at the world. And a lot of times in our Christian life, we look for kind of the elementary healing. And we look for kind of the, just the rudimentary way that God would work with us. But we don't realize that God actually wants to not only cure us of our blindness, but then correct the way that we look, correct the way that we see. And so the second healing is so that we can actually look intently. And this is the way that we are able to change the way that we appraise life and appraise the land.
This is the way that I would suggest that Abraham was actually able to look up. When God looks us up, when God, when God says, raise your eyes up, let me quote you the exact word. When God says, raise your eyes now, that means he's saying, now you are healed to look in the direction of me. You are, you are healed now to look from the vantage point of me. And that's not a very quick process. That can actually be a very difficult process because everything that we once thought was valuable will now become worthless. Everything that we once thought was so highly esteemed would be now something that we don't really consider all that much. So when, when this man is healed of his blindness, he only sees people, he only sees trees walking because he doesn't know how to assess yet. He's not used to seeing any, he's not used to seeing. So he has to train his seeing. So Jesus has to touch him again. And I just wonder how many of you want God to touch the way that you assess and appraise your world. How, does, how, do you, how do you assess the people around you? People that you thought had nothing in them, but they actually have so much in them because you look with the world's eyes and you don't look at them with the Holy Spirit and you don't look at them with the love of God or, or your current financial situation where you think you have nothing to offer. You don't even want to tithe. You don't want to give. You don't want to live generously because the way that you appraise your situation is via lot. But when God comes and touches your eyes, he heals you and changes the way that you look at things. Everything changes. In what areas is God saying, I want to touch your eyes. I want to touch the way that you look at me. I want to touch the way that you look at people. Attention. God, your, your attention is a resource, Right? The attention, the the way that you pay attention is a resource. But your attention doesn't seem to be transactional like money. But you're still paying attention. And God wants you to pay attention in a very different way right now. See, your attention doesn't seem important because when you give your attention to social media, when you give your attention to things, you don't think that you're actually giving of yourself because you're not paying for it or there's nothing transactional but your attention is everything you have your attention is the way that you worship your attention this morning is the manner in which you can actually come before God God needs to touch you a second time to change the way your attention functions every time you want to itch and pick up that smartphone he wants to change it that's not being overly old school or traditional it's real. Check out what's your screen time on your iPhone? What's your weekly average? Is that the type of attention you want to be giving to technology? What is your attention? See, attention is something we give up so quickly. That's how men and women lust. It's attention. And God's saying, no, attention is expensive. It might, it might not be transactional. It might, you, you might not be um, giving money for attention, but your attention is all I want. All God wants is your attention. I want to say to some of you, 
all God wants, forget everything else I said in the sermon. The most important thing is if God gets your attention, if he gets your attention for 24 hours a day, he can do wonders through your life. And he will change you. He will change you. He will form you into the person that you are destined to be. People who are pure, people who have love in their hearts, they do not appraise the world like everybody else. They do not appraise the world at face value. They wait for God to come and they say, look, God, I don't know what's happening right now. It looks like trees are walking, but I need you to come and I need you to touch my life so that I can see clearly. See, you don't have to be perfect. All you have to do is be willing to ask God to come and give you a second healing so he can change the way that you appraise, change the way that you look at life, change the change the disease. It's not just the disease. It's the way that you walked while you were diseased that has to be changed. It's not just the it's not just the 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 hip that was replaced. It's the limp that you used to have. Right. Like Pastor Cole said, when he had a hip replacement, it's not just the bad hip. It's the way that you walk after you, uh, because you still think you're walking with a bad hip, but your hip's healed. So a lot of times, the resurrection of life, the resurrection life of Christ in us, it's already there, but it has to be manifested by us now living healed and getting adjusted to what it means to be healed. Some of you don't know the worth and potential in your spouse. You might have been married six months. You might have been married 20 years. And you don't actually know the true worth and potential of your husband or wife. Because, because all you do is you're continuing what when you once looked at things deeper, now you've transitioned to looking at things at surface value. And God wants to fix your appraisal right now. Because things are hard in COVID, so your appraisal will be all over the place. Things are hard when you're at home 24 hours a day. Things are hard when you got to look at a screen just to go to church. So your appraisal is all over the place. You're Lot and Abraham. You're mixing both up. And I want to say to you today, right now, until whenever this COVID stuff is gone or whatever new normal is or whatever we want to talk about, Ask God to come right now and adjust the way that you appraise the world, others, and yourself. And the other group of you don't know how to even appraise yourself. You look at your life and you think you have nothing. You think you have nothing going for you. You think that people don't value you. People don't esteem you. That's right, because people are just people. But God can appraise you the right way. He knows your gold. That's why you have to ask for his sight right now. Our ability to appraise needs to be healed. I remember when we uh, bought a house in Pasadena, I was so offended by the prices here. I was offended. <laughs> I had visceral uh, offenses and because I grew up here. So I was offended when I wanted to live here. And I remember we, the, the big thing about real estate, right, is you're nervous if the house price is going to be appraised at the value of the loan for the sake of you getting the loan. If your house is not appraised, 
if, if your down payment plus your loan doesn't match the appraisal of the house, then you have to pay extra to make up for the difference that the bank does not appraise for your loan. Okay, so so basically that was like the nervous thing for Lydia and I. Is like, man, they ask we have to pay how much? I hope the bank thinks it's that much too. But I realized God God spoke to me. He's like, this is your current appraisal. This is your current appraisal of the situation. I even told the appraiser that. I said, you guys are coming here and appraising this, but this is 2016. What's what's it going to be at 2021? I, I gave him a five-year thing. So, so, and he was like, well, that's true, but we don't do things that way. I said, okay. But I felt God saying, but I do things that way. <laughs> God does things that way. And it's amazing. If we were so stuck to the initial appraisal, we wouldn't have had the guts to move in faith. And honestly, our house is way, worth way more than we bought it for. Praise God. Because it, it, even though we bought it that we thought it was really high, it's worth way more than we bought it for. Because the thing is, if you appraise it by what the world will tell you, if you appraise life the way that the metrics that the world gives you, you will be misguided because God is always moving us somewhere else. He's moving us in another uh, into the future even, right? And Abraham was obviously a man of faith, but I want to close I want to close today in a space that was not his most shining moment. And it's right before um, the separation. It's right before Abraham and Lot separated. And we just look at Genesis 12, um, verses 10 through 20. All people of faith have spaces in our lives that need work. And that's what the wilderness is for. That's why we praise God that we're in the wilderness, so he could work. Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for the sake he dealt well with Abraham, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. People have said, "Oh well, actually he was. She was. They, you know, he they, he was a half brother to her, so it kind of wasn't fully false." But you and I know that that was nonsense. It was a lie, <laughs> and um, and we see that Abraham does this again, right, to Abimelech later on. So he has the tendency to fear the unknown in such a deep way that he has to adjust facts. He has to adjust. He has to skirt a little bit. 
And I wondered why, okay, I understood, obviously, his life was at danger. But I understand, I, I, I couldn't understand why such a man of deep faith would struggle with this. And it's because at the big, this is chapter 12, Abraham was just called by God. And he didn't know God in such a way that God would take care of his provisions to the places that he was leading him to. See, Abraham thought that it was okay to walk into the promised land half a man, not fully whole, because he didn't know that God was so concerned with the way you do things. He thought God is just outcome driven. He thought God was like the Houston Astros. And he thought that God was just about, you, you have a destination, go to the promised land. And he didn't realize that there's a process that you actually have to go through. And he didn't actually know God in such a way that when God told him to step out and move, God would not ask him to compromise himself or his family for the sake of the next blessing or the next step on his way to his calling. See, some of you do not know that when God calls you to move, he doesn't put you in a situation so that you can compromise your character. And so that you can compromise your integrity or compromise your relationship with him. He actually tells you to go so you can be whole. If you don't know that the places that God has you is to be whole, then you don't know God. If you think that you have to, you have to hustle and cheat your way through life, then you don't actually know the God who's already made provisions for you. You can go to Egypt. You can say she's your wife and nobody's going to touch you. See, some of, some of us, and it could be families, you don't want God to call you to do the next thing because you think it's going to compromise your children or you think it's going to compromise your marriage or you think it's going to compromise your financial situation. And God is saying, I don't do that. It might be hard, but I'm not the God who does that. I'm the God who makes provisions for you when I tell you to go to the next step. When I tell you to go to the next step, you won't be half a person. You will be whole. You will be the new great. You will not be asked to be less in the place that God takes you. I know what it's like to have young kids, and I know it's easy actually not to do anything other than take care of your kids. Because really, they demand that much. Unless God speaks to you and tells you he wants you to do something more, you can't use your kids as an excuse. You can't because you don't worship your kids and your kids don't belong to you either. They belong to God. I know what it's like to be newly married and you want to work on your marriage. But God, but, but God tells you, I want you to do this much more. And you say no, because remember when Jesus called, uh, that I don't even remember the story where people make excuses. And it really, if you look at the excuses, it's marriage children and like land <laughs> that's like our whole life i think it's like marriage land children family every ob- every excuse that's legitimate in the book we can actually quote back to god except god says wait a minute i never asked you to compromise the things that i gave you that make you whole i will never make you less of a person in the next land and today some of you God is placing burn. You're waking up in the morning and you realize there's more to life and you don't know why. 
but God, I do everything right. I have quiet time. I have devotions. I take care of my family. I try to be devoted. I try to come to church. But something's off and you don't know why. It's probably because God has more for you, but you're using all the things that I just mentioned as a shield between you and the next thing. And you will never grow into the person that you have were, are called to become. And when he knew you in your mother's womb, the intentions and the design that he had, you will never become that person until you push yourself, until you push yourself past that space where you think you need to safeguard your identity. You need, and, and what actually happens is he sabotages, he sabotages the very thing he wants to keep his wife. That's like the one thing, that's the one thing that you have to keep, that you have to protect more than anything in the world. And he's like, here, you can have it because I want to preserve my life. That's what we do. When we preserve our life, we actually sabotage the very thing that we're trying to preserve. And God is like, enough of that. In the wilderness, you will learn that I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your family. I'm committed to your your body, your physical life, your spiritual health. I'm committed to you. You're going to go from strength to strength to strength. That's it. From this day on, never think that God is not committed to you being a whole person, complete in every way. When you die you will be closer to being a whole person than when you were born. That's the whole point of Christianity. The closer you get to eternity, the more whole, the more substance you will have inside of you. Right? So I understand Abraham, a man of faith, who feels like he has to do the work to preserve his life in Egypt. But God makes provisions for us. Everybody is always concerned with God's will. What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? I would ask you to say, what is God's way for my life? What is, I don't know what his will is. I don't know where we're going. I don't know. But who does he want me to become? And what is his way for my life? The way because one thing that I've discovered about my God is he cares so much about the way I do things. He's not careless and casual. He doesn't kind of look this way or he doesn't kind of permit things in the way that human beings permit. He stares dead in the face and he walks with you through the way. He cares about the way. The way is your destination. That is what we care about. Let's pray. God, we know you heal the way we, our blindness. But we're asking right now that you heal the way that we see after we're healed. We know that you heal that blind man. And then when he opened his eyes, things looked like trees walking. But you needed to correct the way that he saw the world. So I pray right now in the name of Jesus that we would be people who look intently right now. We would be people that look intently. We would appraise the world in a radically different way. I pray for my brothers and sisters who feel like they have nothing to even appraise. 
today in the spirit, would you raise their eyes up right now in a brand new way, in a way like never before? Jesus, we are committed to your way in us when nobody's watching. Right now, I pray for a grace among everybody watching this or hearing this. When nobody's watching, you will experience a grace right now. You will experience a grace to do the right thing when nobody's watching. Not in some idealistic overly spiritual way, but in a very practical way. When we want to cheat and go left, you say, no, go right. You start to whisper your instructions to us. Come, Holy Spirit. Take everything in us that wants us to be, that wants us to bring people in the pathway because it's easier or or better or more affirming or whatever it is. Anything in us that doesn't want us to separate and be clean. I pray, Lord, that you would just take it away. We don't know how to do that, but you know how to do it. There are unknown things to us. We are not that self-aware. So we just say right now, corporately, you can take away whatever you want that is terrible for us. We don't know what those things are, but you can take it away. You can separate us from those things. We bless you, Lord. We choose your way. We know that doing things the right way is your will. Bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.